Hey, Hills Church family. All right, it is the last sermon of the last weekend in the last series before Easter. So uh, I'm just going to be real with y'all. I had a, uh, I didn't tell the other services this. This is just, just for this crew. Uh, uh, for everybody in person and, and online, uh, whether you're at one of our campuses or online. So uh, this is just, just, for the, just for the late crowd, okay? I, uh, I had a stomach bug uh, in the second half of this week. It swept through our whole house. Um, I am, uh, I'm just like wrung out uh, and, and bounced back. Well, then right before this last service, uh, my four-year-old son starts running around the building and we couldn't find him. And so we're running around trying, trying to find him, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then we find him within just a couple of minutes before David gets on stage to do an announcement. So I come backstage, I say my prayer, and now I'm out here with y'all. So that's where we're at, <laughs> which means God's got something good in store for this service. I be, I'm, I'm believing for it. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. Uh, if you're joining us maybe for the first time, uh, I hope you can already see. We take seriously what God's doing among us. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Uh, we, know, uh, we know that he takes broken vessels and he redeems us uh, as imperfect people to share uh, truth about him because he's the one who's perfect. So it's definitely not us. It's definitely not me. That's especially true today. I promise. But if you're brand new, just let me just give you a little snapshot of this series. So in the idea of second-guessing Jesus, we, we don't always doubt whether or not God exists, but we often wonder if he's right. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, people questioned him and second-guessed him about all kinds of things, about his mission, about the idea of forgiveness, uh, about traditions that people kept, about the kind of people he was willing to keep company with. I mean, there are all kinds of things that Jesus was second-guessed about, and even about his spiritual authority. But we have come to the biggest second guess in today's passage. So even if you're brand new with us, man, this is a great week for you to be here or to be joining us online. And so in Mark 8, for, for this big finish, we need a little bit of a ramp up. So we're going to start a little bit earlier and have a kind of a journey through the passage and we'll get to, uh, we'll get to our destination. We're going to begin in Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? So we've got a, we've got a destination we're going to head towards, and this is not it, but we're taking the scenic route, so just pit stop for a second. Jesus just asked his disciples the two questions that every person who reckons with the identity of Jesus has to work through. What do other people say about Jesus? And what do I actually think about Jesus? If, if you're new with us and maybe you're exploring what it means to, to believe in God or exploring the idea of the Christian faith, again, so glad that you are listening. And it's, it's worth asking the question, what do other people think about Jesus? And at the same time, even, even what other people think really can't be the main thing for us. Jesus with his disciples, sure, the crowds have their opinion, but he wants their confession. And so he presses in, but what do you say? Because really, Jesus will never allow our relationship with him to live off of other people's opinions. 
past our friends, past our spouse, past our classmates, past our family members, past even the pastor, past all of those different people, God's asking each one of us, what do we believe? And so when he does this and presses in, it's Peter who speaks up on behalf of all the disciples. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now here's what you need to know. Up to this point, the first half of Mark's gospel, it's 16 chapters, so the first eight chapters, this first half, have all been about one pressing question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? People have had all kinds of different answers. They've called him a teacher. They've called him, they've called him a rabbi. They've called him a, a prophet. Some have called him a prophet come back from the dead. They've got all these different theories, but no one up to this point has said this word. The word Messiah means anointed one. God had all kinds of different messiahs in the Old Testament. You may not know that. Messiah, that, that name anointed one, there were lots of lowercase m messiahs. They were anointed with different skills or purposes for their different tasks and roles in serving God's people. There were lots of lowercase m messiahs, but there was only one capital M messiah, a promised redeemer that God would raise up, a prophet like Moses who would come and begin to set things right for the people of Israel. And when Peter makes this confession, he is saying, Jesus, we believe you are the capital M messiah. This is huge. I mean, the Messiah's been promised for generations. It's been held out as this great hope, and the promise is not only for Israel. The Messiah's promise of redemption would eventually spill out into all the world. This is huge news, and so Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. <laughs> okay, a uh, little bit of confusing, if we're honest, but um, we're in the ramp-up, so let's just give it time, see how this plays out. After the confession, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So another important first right after the, the, the other. As soon as the title of Messiah is associated with Jesus, Jesus begins to explain what his messianic journey looks like. It's, it, think of it like this. Basically, what Jesus is saying to his disciples in this moment is like, okay, you, you finished Messiahship 101. You know that it's me, but you don't actually know what that means. So let me take you to the second course and let's explain it. And as far as Jesus is concerned, him being Messiah means that he's going to suffer many things, be rejected by the religious leadership, then he's going to be killed, and then three days later he's going to rise from the dead. And the text says, Mark makes it very clear, Jesus doesn't beat around the bush with this. He is extremely clear. He speaks plainly. And all of this is the ramp up to this reaction. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So at least now we know why Jesus didn't want the disciples going and saying anything yet. Because it seems that he and his disciples are not on the same page of what it means to be a Messiah. 
Jesus is saying, you don't fully understand. And as he begins to explain it, now we have the biggest second guess from Peter. And where the rubber meets the road for us in this is that Peter, who is taking his own teacher to task, and this is right after he just confessed that he is the anointed one. It's not a good look for Peter in this moment. But here's, here's the rub. It is possible to be right about who Jesus is and wrong about what Jesus should do. It's possible to profess faith in Jesus, but still try to force him to fit into our preconceived notions. To put it bluntly, it's possible to be a follower of Jesus and be deeply offended by his cross. So here's how I'd sum up the second guess. How could Jesus' crucifixion be part of God's plan? How in the world is, is this supposed to be what God wants to happen? Now, a lot of us have wrestled with this before, but maybe we've only done it internally. And I, I appreciate that Peter's at least willing to be out loud with it. Now, admittedly, we, you know, I just said, it's not a good look for him. It makes him look bad. I even had somebody at an earlier service come up after the sermon and say, I think Peter had ADD. And then this person said, by the way, I'm saying that because it takes one to know one. And this guy's impulsive and he says a lot of stuff. He's kind of a ready, fire, aim kind of a person. Like, that's Peter. But he says all this out loud. But he gives voice to some of the things that we even work through. But before we look with hindsight and go, well, Peter's obviously wrong. Let's just, let's just give uh, Peter a fair hearing. He and the other disciples grew up in a society that when the Messiah was talked about, the Messiah that he would have heard about promised in the prophets, the Messiah who would have been referenced in synagogue teachings on the Sabbath, the Messiah who would have been held out as a hope for the family at every Passover meal each year, all these different promises about the Messiah. Guess what? The Messiah was always a winner, never a loser. As far as Jewish tradition through the Jewish scriptures and interpreting them, as far as, as, far as that community was concerned, the Messiah was supposed to be a victor, not somebody who ever experienced defeat. The, the Messiah is supposed to be a conqueror, not one who experiences that kind of death. The Messiah was going to be a military figure who would come in and, and kick out the Roman Empire that was currently over uh, the, the nation of Israel. I mean, the, the Messiah was supposed to do those great things out of strength and dominance and power. And so as far as Peter is concerned, what Jesus just described would make Jesus a false Messiah. Jesus, Jesus, as far as Peter's concerned, needs some help, which is why Peter thinks he's doing Jesus a favor when he takes him aside. Like I can just picture it. So, uh, Jesus, I want to talk about what you just said because um, I've, got, I've got some problems, and uh, I'm not the only one. I don't know if you saw Bartholomew's face. He's, he's freaking out. But, like, this whole thing is just... Um, uh, I, I, I get that you think you have a plan, but it's a bad plan. So we need to change the plan. Right now, only 13 of us know about the plan. So let's burn the plan up and come up with a new plan. Because if we let them kill you, you'll never be Messiah. And that was really the rub. 
How could a Messiah anointed by God also die? Makes no sense for Peter, for the rest of the disciples. And in the rest of the Gospel of Mark and all the different places in the Gospels, when the death of Jesus is brought up by Jesus, the disciples get squeamish. They get offended. they're, They're bothered by it. Rightfully so. Because there had been a long line of would-be messiahs who tried to bring uh, uh, insurrectionists up against Rome and try and set free their own people, and they all ended up being killed, which meant they were no longer would-be messiahs. They were false messiahs. That's where Peter's coming from. For Peter, death cannot be part of the answer. I mean, especially not a death on a cross. Who in the world would come up with this? I think the answer answer is no one. No one from an earthly perspective comes up with this game plan. There's a pastor and author named Fleming Rutledge, and she wrote this uh, pretty incredible work called The Crucifixion. There's so much rich teaching in it, but um, one of the things that she says is that the paradox of the Christian religion is that at the center of the Christian faith is an irreligious event, referring to the crucifixion. What does she mean by that? Well, she, in her book, she defines religion as a set of beliefs projected out of humanity's needs, wishes, longings, and fears. Now, that's, that's a helpful framing right there, that the idea that religion is something that People believe out of their own needs, their own wishes, their own longings, their own fears. Man's projections creates a religion. And when you look at the religions around the world, there's at least one thing we all have in common. We can all agree that the world is messed up. Doesn't matter what you believe. In fact, set aside religions. Every single philosophical movement in history regardless of if there's a deity involved or not, could all agree something's wrong with the world and something is wrong with humankind. And so everybody works on their different answer for what can be done about it, what should be done about it, because in this world we see so much brokenness, so much violence and pain and death. And the the, the Christian word for this is sin, but whatever you want to call it, even in a country where, where in front of our White House the flag was at half-mast for one shooting, then raised back up only for a couple of hours before another shooting took place and it was brought back down. All of us can agree something is deeply wrong. But if it was people who would then take all their fears and their longings and their dreams and their wishes and try and dream up, what's the solution? Nobody comes up with Jesus on a cross. No human projects their hopes onto a crucified, tried criminal. Doesn't make any sense, which is Fleming Rutledge's point. That for us, we, we would never do that. We don't do that to our heroes. We don't, we don't want to do that to the people who would rescue us, who would save us, who would be our champions. And, and yet that was what God willed and God went to the cross. 
in the flesh as Jesus. Our challenge is we're like Peter, though we might not always say it. We want a Savior, but not a suffering Savior. We want a Redeemer, but not a rejected Redeemer. We want a King, but not a crucified King. Because the cross, it's just too offensive. Recently, there was a a Franciscan University in Ohio that posted some ads for some of their theology courses. And the Facebook monitors took down one of the ads that had a visual representation of crucifixion. And the Facebook monitors said that the reason for their rejection of the ad was that they found the depiction of the cross, quote, shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. So the Franciscan University of Steubenville responded with a blog post in which they agreed with Facebook. They wrote, quote, Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed God. It was shocking, yes. God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient to death, even death on a cross, as Philippians 2 says. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed, naked to a cross, and left to die. All the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath upon his humanity. The, the university went on to say that, quote, it was love that kept Jesus on the cross. Love for you and for me, that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have life eternal with him and his Father in heaven. It really was out of love and compassion that Jesus both foretold and then was willing to face and head towards his cross. Because Jesus knew that there was, he believed From his father, he said in the Gospel of John, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Jesus knew something would be accomplished on the cross. It couldn't happen any other way. Now to us, it is at once a mystery, and yet as Christians, it's also the message we proclaim. That on the cross, Jesus, the sinless one, took on the sins of the world. Jesus, the victor, suffered the abuse of all victims. Jesus, the innocent, faced the punishment of the guilty. Jesus, the powerful, embraced weakness itself. Jesus, the life giver, succumbed to death so that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus, the righteous, now offers us his righteousness. Jesus, the beloved son, becomes our brother in God's family. Jesus, the resurrected one, now offers us hope beyond the grave. Jesus, the king, welcomes us in as citizens in his kingdom. Jesus, the bridegroom, prepares his bride, the church, for an eternal wedding banquet. Jesus knew and believed that he would accomplish something on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection that God was working to bring redemption and hope that it couldn't come any other way. And since it was something Jesus believed God willed, Jesus says, this is how it has to happen. Look back at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, live at all of our campuses, will you say that word? 
must. Not, that it, not just that it's going to happen, that it had to happen. That he must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And he must rise. And I, we bring so many questions to the cross. It's only human. It's only natural. But as I wrestled with some of those questions that so many of us have, I felt that word pressing down on me this week. Because from Jesus' perspective, this was how it had to be. Yeah, we hear him here in, in Mark 8 saying, this is how it must happen, but then follow him. Follow him to the upper room where he has his last meal and creates a moment to remember his sacrifice because this is how it must happen to create a covenant of his new blood. Follow him to the garden where he prays before he's going to be betrayed, before he's going to be put on a mock trial overnight, before a crowd is going to cry out for him to be crucified, before he's going to be whipped and then dragged through town and then he's going to be strung up on the outside of town, outside the city gates, by the highway, for as many people to see as possible before all of that. He prays, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but yours be done. That prayer that has meant so much to so many Christians means nothing if there was another way to do it. As far as Jesus was concerned, while the cross accomplished many things, so much more than I can say in one particular sermon, for today, can we live with the realization that Jesus believed his death on our behalf was absolutely necessary to rescue us from our sins? That as far as our Savior was concerned, there was no other option. That this was essential to God's work of redemption. Because that's how he saw it. And in his love, Jesus was willing to go in his love, he was determined, and no one would swerve him off course, which is why he responds the way he does to Peter. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Maybe no more harsh words from Jesus to anyone in the Gospels than that moment right there. And yet, Jesus heard in Peter's word a temptation, not unlike some that he'd heard before in the desert, a temptation to avoid discomfort, a temptation to leverage his power for his own ease, a temptation to do it his way. And Jesus calls it out for what it is. But not only that, Jesus also diagnoses the root of every sin and every second guess. Human concerns vetoing godly concerns. My priorities over Christ's. My instincts over the Holy Spirit's leading. This is the root of so many of our second guesses. Of times where, where we're, what we're most concerned with, we may 
position it like we're concerned about something from a faith standpoint, but inwardly, we may be operating out of fear. We may position it as if we're concerned on God's behalf, and yet so often we're trying to baptize our own wants and desires. And I'm so grateful that Jesus ignored the human concerns in Mark 8 because he knew that the cross would not only be in service of God's concerns to reconcile sinful humanity back to a holy God. It would not only work to begin a renewing of all of the world through the resurrected life of Jesus and the resurrected message of the church, but that, but that ultimately, in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and raised again, I find that all of my human concerns now have a solution that I never would have dreamed up. I now have a hope that I never would have found on my own. And that's only because in that moment, Jesus ignored the human concerns for what God wanted. But according to Jesus, all, all this hope, all of this redemption, all of this incredible life that, that comes through his willing, sacrificial death on the cross, burial, and resurrection, what does that mean for us? Besides all the great things that it wins for us. And this is where Jesus now doesn't just re rebuke, but now he turns and he begins to instruct. The very next thing Jesus says in front of not just Peter and not just the disciples, but all of the crowd who were following along, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. See, Jesus wasn't going to allow Peter to talk him out of becoming a crucified Messiah, but now Jesus is starting to talk about what it means to be a cross-shaped disciple. See, if the Messiah is called to the cross, no disciple will be sent to the couch. Instead, Jesus says, no, how, how I am going, the way and the path that I am taking is therefore if you follow me, you also are on the path of the cross. You also are on the path of self-denial. You also are on the path of choosing God's concerns over human concerns. And that's the invitation for each one of us today. Which I'll be honest, there's times in Christian circles where our, our desire for outreach is such that we, we lean really hard into God's grace, into his love, into his mercy, into, into the empowering of the Holy Spirit that happens for believers every single day, and it's all true. And I love preaching it. But this moment also reminds me, what am I empowered for? What am I forgiven for? What am I set free to do? It's not to have a, a slightly better, peppier version of my old life. No, I'm, I'm empowered to do something I could never do on my own, which is to deny myself and choose the way of the cross, the way of my crucified Savior every day. Lord knows this guy could never do that on his own but only through my crucified Savior, whose spirit is now in me, leading me, guiding me. Only through that can now I start to live into this new way of life. And Jesus goes on to say, man, you, you pursue this. When you lose your life in the way of the cross, you're gonna find real life. 
That's the promise. And so as a little bit of an epilogue to the Second Guessing series, I started thinking about this and realizing that for a lot of us, there's, there is an unspoken but lived out second guess as followers of Jesus. Can I benefit from Christ's cross without having to bear my own? There's a uh, pastor and author named Brian Loritz. He was a, they were in a rented space at the church that he was preaching for. And they had to change locations. Well, at the previous rented location, they'd been able to leave all their gear up. Uh, the, the, the music, the, the, the lectern, the cross that they kept on stage. Well, now they're having to do set up and tear down in a new location. Everything's load in Sunday morning, load out Sunday afternoon. So he's in a meeting with the staff and they're debating things that they can change, ways they can kind of lighten the load. And, and then the, the, the topic of the, the cross that they had on stage was brought up. This particular cross was, was really heavy, the staff said. It was like hard for volunteers to move. And so all of a sudden they came up with a game plan that, that they were going to rebuild the cross with far lighter materials so it would lessen the load on the volunteer crew. Everybody in the room agreed they moved on. And later that day, Brian was reflecting and he wrote, it dawned on me the irony of our conversation. For we wanted to construct a cross that would not burden or cause us the slightest discomfort. And he asks, could this be a fitting parable for so many of us Christians, especially in the West? The cross is not an elective in the curriculum of the Messiah. It is core. It's not a side dish. It's part of the entree. It is not a lead up to the good news, but it is central to the gospel of God's love and grace. And so to summarize, here's how I'd put it. We are forever changed by the cross of Christ and formed daily by the cross we carry. Forever changed because through the cross, Jesus has won for us forgiveness and mercy and grace. He has done this not because of anything we did to earn it, but only because of our desperate need for him as a savior and God's reckless love for us. But we're formed daily by following a crucified Savior who asks us to take up our cross. And so every week as a church, we take time to do what Jesus asked us to do. The night before he was going to die, he sat with his disciples and he talked to them about his body broken and his blood poured out. Now in just a moment, we're gonna take communion together. But before we do that, I was um, just thinking about the fact that in Roman society during the age of crucifixion, that was not a topic you brought up in polite company. It was taboo. It was shameful. Nobody talked about it among the upper crust of Rome for the most part because it was too horrible to mention. And God took that and turned it into a topic that Christians circle up and we preach about and we read verses about and we proclaim and we cherish and we remember. And I've been thinking about some of the hymns, songs that have been passed down generation to generation that point us again to the cross. And those, those lyrics hit different when I think about everything Jesus went through, when it's real to me and not just song lyrics. And so... Wherever you're listening from, I just want to ask you to join in, 
singing a few of these words as we prepare to remember the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Sing out. See from his head, his hands, his Sorrow and love flow, mingle down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? O'er thorns compose so rich a crown and when I think that God his son not sparing sent him to die I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art he took my sins and my sorrows he made them his very own he bore the burden to calvary and suffered and died alone why did he do it how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love
because he loved you. It's because the Father loved the world. And so we remember. Even in the face of a pandemic, with these stupid little things we have to use. In defiance of that, of the broken and sin of this world that causes us to continue to adapt, we hold out what is eternally true, that Jesus, in his mercy and grace and love, let his body be broken. Let his blood be poured out for you and for me, for all the world, because of his love. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we'll take communion together. And uh, afterwards, as we worship in response, there's going to be some ready to pray with you. Because communion also reminds us we are a community doing this together. And so there'll be some ready to pray for you in person. But as we remember, let's bow together. Oh, Jesus, we declare what is eternally true. We never would have asked for or dreamed up a crucified king. But you gave us what we knew we never needed, but always wanted you gave us yourself. For those who feel alone, God, would you help them see in Jesus a Savior who was abandoned and knows loneliness and meets them there. For those who are despairing, at the cross would they meet a Savior who has not only felt despair, but experience the worst that a despairing humanity can cause. For those struggling to forgive others, would you help them see at the cross a Savior who speaks forgiveness for those who are crucifying him and speaks forgiveness over us so that we can forgive others. We remember your body broken, your blood poured out. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.